All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 14. Thankful for our song service this morning. What great songs and truths to reflect on. Uh, both of the, all the songs were, were great. These last two songs in particular, really the last three songs have so much application to our text this morning. Um, and I'm not sure, are we having a church split here or something? We're kind of, kind of light over here, but... That's all right. Uh, you, guys, you guys hold down the fort over here, okay? All right. Um, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm so excited about this text. And just to read uh, a couple of the phrases from this song, Always, that we sang this morning. Um, it, it's a, a song of testimony, um, almost written like a psalm of, of David, right? It says this, my foes are many, they rise against me but I will hold my ground. I will not fear the war. I will not fear the storm. My help is on the way. My help is on the way. Oh my God, He will not delay. My refuge and strength always. I will not fear. His promise is true. My God will come through always. This is a beautiful truth that we can um, anchor our hearts and our minds around uh, and especially in context to our passage here in John chapter number 14. Um, I'm keeping the same title for this week's message as I did last week, and we're just calling it part two of turning faith into action. Faith into action. We're seeing a progression that Christ is taking his disciples through in this upper room discourse as he is reminding them of his mission, why he has come, uh, that is to give his life a ransom for many. And that means him going to the cross, giving his life, shedding his blood, going to a tomb, raising again on the third day, and ascending up into heaven. So he is, he is speaking to this, this uh, soon departure, this soon separation between Christ and his disciples, and they're troubled. They're struggling, there's uncertainty, there's fear, there's doubt that this man that they have given everything to now is going to leave them and uh, they don't know quite how to handle it. And so this good shepherd uh, motif in, in, in John is carried through the chapter, uh, through the remaining chapter of 14 as Christ come alongside his disciples and guides them through these muddy waters of human emotion and gets them to a point where he can anchor their faith and their love and their obedience on Christ. And he gives them hope in this passage. Something to carry them through. And so here we are again in chapter 14. Uh, the task that we have is to finish out the chapter. Full that we will do that. And I tell you what, my heart is already full this, this Sunday coming off of the men's retreat. And... Um, we, we just had such great fellowship and time in the word and strengthening friendships and relationships, both old and new. And I'm excited about what God is doing uh, in and through our church and specifically through uh, our men, as uh, no doubt we have many, many takeaways as we focused on this, this laws of the harvest. So once again, here we are in really the final portions of this upper room discourse and his disciples are in need of encouragement once again. His disciples are struggling. And he speaks to that struggle. And so we're officially moving into what many theologians will call the farewell, farewell cycle of Christ in his earthly ministry. There's a number of core and strategic and unique teachings that Christ will use these, these final hours with his disciples to impart very key things that are going to give insight about who he is as Savior and Lord and how we are to relate to him as Savior and Lord in the coming chapters. But ultimately, we will continue to see Christ continuing to progress as the Son of God towards the cross, towards realizing this mission that he has come to fulfill, to lay down life for his sheep. We're going to see Christ coming to fulfill this mission, to lay down his life for his sheep. And we're going to see just the heart of Christ just poured out in these final few chapters in unique ways that I hope as 
church-age believers that we can cling to with hope, that it can draw us into a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has saved us. It will draw us farther away from our flesh and draw us closer to the foot of the cross where we see Jesus bleeding. We see Jesus suffering. We see Jesus taking on our shame so that we could be made right in the eyes of God. This great exchange that is coming that is so beautiful. Let us be moved by our Savior and His heart for His sheep in these closing few chapters. So what's the big idea of our text here this morning in John 14? Because Jesus has sent his followers, the helper, the spirit of truth. We can face the trials and challenges of life with confidence, knowing that he, both the son and the father, loves us and will always be with us. That was a long, big idea. So let me read it just one more time for you, right? The big idea of our text this morning is this, because Jesus has sent his followers, the helper, the spirit of truth, we can face the trials and challenges of life with what? With confidence, knowing that he, both the son and the father, loves us and will always be with us. So he addresses once again in real tangible ways how the disciples are going to be able to get through this coming tragedy. In air quotes, it's not a tragedy, but it will seem that way at first glance. And in similar ways, how we, today's disciples, can get through the tragedy of our own lives. Tragedy is real, is it not? Being stricken with ALS That's a tragedy. It's hard. That's difficult. Those are challenging times that we go through. And I'm sure we all, in some way, shape, or form, have experienced some form of tragedy in our lives. Maybe it's a challenging relationship with your spouse. And you just can't seem to do anything right in their eyes. And you're fighting and you're bickering and you just seem to be Not a one unit, one flesh marriage, but you rather seem to be enemies in the home. Have you ever been there? That's that's a tragedy. Christ wants to speak hope into that situation today. Have you lost a job that you loved, that you thought you were uniquely skilled to be successful in, but yet for some reason, you lost it. You got fired. You got let go. The company shut their doors, whatever it might be, and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills next week. You don't know how you're going to provide for your family. That's tragedy. Have you been there? Have you ever had a beloved family member? There'd be a spouse, a child, a grandma, a grandpa, somebody that you love dearly, that made an impact on your life, and they were suddenly taken away overnight. And you're, you're struggling with the human emotion of, of why. It's, it's tragedy, it's trial, it's difficulty. And in those moments, our human emotion struggles. We're weak. We don't have the answer why. And so we, we look to Jesus. We look to our faith to uphold us and provide that foundation, that, that strong tower that we can run to and be safe. Safe from what? The, the world, our flesh, and all the lies that we try to speak into our mind and our heart. And we can run to Christ and he anchors us on what? The spirit of truth, of hope. And it's in that spirit of truth that we can fight the good fight. We can engage in spiritual warfare against the lies and the deception of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so this is what we have before us this morning in in John chapter number 14. Jesus has sent his followers, the helper, the spirit of truth. And because of that, we can face the trials and challenges of life with confidence, knowing that he, both the Son and the Father, loves us and will always be with us. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus demonstrates a unique and lasting love for his disciples. 
The first truth that we're going to look at this morning is this, that Jesus demonstrates a unique and lasting love for his disciples. Let's read our text this morning and see uh, where we find this truth this morning. Let's look at verse number 15 of John chapter number 14. Christ says this, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse number 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who what loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and, excuse me, and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We see in the first section of this scripture, verses 15 through 24, we see Christ demonstrating a unique and lasting love for his disciples. Let's look back to verse number 12. What do we see there in verse 12? Jesus clearly connected true and authentic belief in Jesus with doing the works of Jesus. Right? Do we see it there in verse number 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Jesus connected authentic belief in himself with doing the works that he himself also did. In other words, Jesus has essentially said, if you say you believe in me, you will live like I did, you will love others like I did, and you will do the Father's will as I did. Christ is creating a continued case that continues to build throughout chapter 14 that has fully exposed the unbelief of who? Judas. But will continue to lead the remaining disciples into full relationship, not only with Jesus, but with the full triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful reality of the progression of fellowship that is anchored in belief and faith in Christ, that is worked out in love for Christ, that ultimately true authentic love is going to be worked out in making more disciples of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us. Fellowship, belief, love, obedience, disciple-making. This is the progression of the Christian life that we see fully worked out in John chapter number 14. And it is God's plan. And it is beautiful. So with that context in mind, Jesus promises a series of gifts that are available to his disciples in this text. There's a series of gifts that Christ uses to anchor these struggling disciples on the hope of who he is. I'm not just going to leave you and leave you alone. I'm going to give you some things to help you through this life. Let's look at them. First, a couple comments on these gifts. These gifts are conditional based on their relationship with Christ. Right? Remember, again, this progression that we've seen develop through the Gospel of John, fellowship, belief, love, obedience, which leads to disciple-making. So on the basis of this close, intimate relationship that Christ has with his followers, with his disciples, we see Christ giving the hope of these resources that he is strategically and uniquely making available to them 
as disciples, as followers, if they simply love Christ and obey his commandments. So these resources and these gifts are available. They're working in their life, and the effect of these gifts in their life are conditional on our recognizing them as such and following in obedience to them. Let's look at verse number 15. We're seeing verse number 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's something about the love of Christ that God's word says constrains us. It draws us in. There's something about the love of Christ that is unique. And we see really at the end of our text, let's look at verse number 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So we have in our text the first verse, verse 15, and the last verse, verse 31, this book end and this concept of loving, keeping commandments, right? Christ tells us, he says, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. You will obey what I have told you to do. You obey my teachings. You obey my life. You will live as I lived. But he doesn't just as a, a strong authoritarian leader, just say, do it. Why? Because I said so. Right? Have you ever been there, dads? But he says, live in this way. Why? Because that's how I lived. The beauty of following Christ is that whatever he asks from us, he has modeled for us. Right, the beauty of following Christ is that he isn't this mean old ogre, this authoritarian leader that just hits us over the head when we mess up and says, obey me. Whack. Because I said so. That's not Jesus. He said, obey me, keep my commandments. Why? Because this is how I lived. You said you're a Christian. You said you're a follower of me. You say you're a disciple of me. So that means you're going to live like me. I was sent down from the Father. He gave me a mission. And Christ says in verse 31 that I have done what the Father commanded me. And what's the purpose of obedience? It's not so that we can earn more grace. It's not so that we can have more favor in the eyes of God. It's not so that we can have a greater standing. The purpose of obedience here on earth is so that we can show others the love of Christ. Right? Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is what Christ is saying. I have done what the Father commanded me so that the world, why? So that the world would know that I love the Father. So we see it in verse 15 and we see it in this last chapter of, or this last verse of chapter 14, this bookend of this conditional requirement modeled in the life of Christ. This idea of obey what I command is not merely to be understood as obeying a series of ethical precepts or rules of morality. For the commands in verse 17 and 21, my word in verse 23, and my words in verse 24, these are the collective things, the commandments, the teachings, the words, the life and ministry of Christ that the disciples have observed and seen as they've been walking and talking and living with Christ, they're closely related and involve the entire scope of Jesus' life and ministry. He is telling them to what? Live like I lived. In my fleshly mind, when I hear Christ say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, my flesh automatically casts up a list of do's and don'ts with boxes beside them. And in that point, I just start checking a box. And as soon as I check that box, I just feel pretty good about myself. And I feel like I've just earned a little bit more of the love of Christ. And then I go back to that list and 
whatever it is, I, I check another one because I've done it. And man, now I've really got a spring in my step because I'm really spiritual. I've got two boxes checked and I've earned more grace in the eyes of God. And then I go back to that list and I check another one, another one. And before I know it, my high that I get in the spiritual life isn't about loving Christ. It's about following a, a, a legalistic rules of morality. And it's no longer about a relationship, but it's about literally earning more grace in the eyes of God, which we know we can't do. Our righteousness in the eyes of God are as filthy rags in and of ourselves. So what are we talking about? We're talking about not starting with rules, but starting with the relationship. And because of that relationship and what's represented in, in self service and selflessly giving of Christ, living with others, loving others in a way that shows forth the love of God. Because of that, God's grace and salvation continues to work in and through me for works, not of my own, but the work of Christ and his grace coming to full fruition. We're going to see this modeled in John chapter number 15 and just... Uh, Actually, just next week, right? Where we're going to see this relationship between Christ, the vine, and we are the branches. And we're going to bear fruit as a result of being connected and abiding in that relationship with Christ. So what are the conditional promises or resources that Christ has given to the disciples here in our text? First, Jesus promises to give us the helper Right, we see that in verse number 16, right? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Right? I, I love this um, analogy of helper that Christ uses. And he doesn't just say a new helper, but it's another helper, right? That, that, that gives us the context that Christ was a what? That he was a helper to these men as they went through life together. And so there's going to be another helper, that Christ is going to go to the Father and that they'll send down uh, to be with the disciples. Which Christ describes in a unique way the spirit of what? Verse number 17. So here we have, I want to take a few moments to really anchor ourselves on the incredible breadth and width of this resource and gift of the Helper. In our conservative uh, circles of Christianity, uh, we tend to elevate God the Father. We continue to elevate God the Son for obvious reasons. But many times in our conservative uh, brands of Christianity, uh, we fail to really recognize the true value of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tends to be left on the shelf. It's reactionary, of course, right? We know there are full denominations out there who in many ways have abused the ministry and the work in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so in reactionary response to that, we have almost developed what we've called in the past charisphobia, right? Which is a phobia of the charismatic movement. And in doing so, we have underplayed and undervalued the role and the resource of the Holy Spirit in our life. Have we forgotten that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune Godhead? The Holy Spirit is God? That the Holy Spirit was active in creation, is active in salvation? The Holy Spirit is God. So this helper, this another helper that Christ is sending with the Father, it's not second rate, it's not second best, there is lacking nothing. In fact, Christ says, it is better for you that I leave this earth so that I can send this spirit to do its work on this earth. So I want to speak to maybe our own context of church background and challenge us to consider maybe a new, a fresh way how I can relate to the spirit how I can respond to the Spirit, how I can understand the Spirit better uh, in my Christian life. So Jesus promises to give us the helper, the Spirit of truth. This proper noun, the helper, comes from the root word of the Greek verb, 
parakaleo. Parakaleo, which literally means this, to call or summon to one's side, to call upon for help. When you're in distress, when you have a trial, when tragedy hits, you exercise parakaleo. Call on God for help, for aid, for assistance. So on the basis of this Greek verb, parakaleo, we have here the paraklete, the proper noun, the helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead represented right here in John 14. That is what Christ has given his disciples. Wow, that's huge. They have the Holy Spirit promised to them. Other translations that we'll see in this verse will translate this helper, this paraclete, as comforter, as counselor, as advocate. What a gift Jesus has provided on our behalf in the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, the Spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit is in you and is with you. What does this mean for you? That no matter what you're going through, no matter what the trial, how short or how long, you're not going through it alone. You have the paraclete, the helper, the one who is called to your aid. He is with you and he is in you. Take hope. Be encouraged. Be glad that we have the helper available to us. And this is what Christ was seeking to do in the life of these struggling disciples. I'm going to leave, but take hope. You have the helper. That's, that's incredible. And so we see that this spirit is given in this initial identification as the spirit of truth. We've seen this theme of truth throughout John's gospel. One of the most important attributes of Jesus in John's account is that Jesus speaks the truth and that he is the truth. Do we remember verse 6? Just a few verses up, Jesus exclaims, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so Jesus speaks the truth. He is the truth. We see this in chapter 1, verse 14. We see this in verse uh, number 17 of chapter 1. We see this in chapter 8, verse number 30, verses 45 through 46 of chapter 8. We see it certainly in our text in verse number 6, the theme of truth and Christ being truth is all over this gospel of John. And so identify this spirit as truth, identifies it as authentic, as real, as trustworthy. It is the spirit of truth. Followers of both Jesus and God the Father are expected to follow this truth, the spirit of truth. Turn over to chapter 8, verse number 44. John chapter 8, verse number 44. Jesus, if we'll remember, is in this interaction with right, the Pharisees, and he says what? Verse 44, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the what? Truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies... Right? It's not if, but it's when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. <laughs> I love Christ. He is taking the gloves off here, right? He is calling Satan out for what he is. He's a liar. 
He has no truth. He does not know the truth. There is nothing in him that can relate to or know any kind of truth because he in his essence and his character is lies and deceitfulness. So in stark contrast to that, Christ says, I am giving you the spirit of of truth. And that would resonate with them because they've seen that modeled in the life and the ministry of Christ. He is truth. So the obvious question that arises with that context in mind is this. Who is able to receive this promised gift of the Spirit? And what is the intended span and scope of the gift of this Spirit? We see here that the Spirit is given an initial identification as, uh, excuse me, that's the same paragraph. The use of, the, of, of you in verses 15 through 17 are all what? Plural. So who's Christ speaking to here? He's speaking to his disciples. And not only just to his disciples, but he's also spanning the history of mankind. And he's saying, anybody that knows me knows the Father. And if you know the Father, I'm going to give you the Spirit to help you get through life. Therefore, that extends not just to this band of disciples, but also to us in the church age. So he's speaking to believers and followers of Christ. This gift of the Spirit then should be viewed in this greater context of the gathered church, the body of Christ. We see all through the book of Acts the integral role that the Spirit played in building and protecting and growing the church of God. The Spirit is active in and through the lives of committed followers of Christ and as such will make a tangible impact in the world that they live. So just as Christ lived and loved the way he did for a purpose, what was that purpose? Verse 31, to let the world know that he loved the Father, so do we live and love for a purpose, namely to let others know the love of the Father and sending His only begotten Son. And that that Son is the Christ, the Son of God. So this Spirit of truth in verse number 16 and 17, this Spirit of truth is for all disciples, both then and now, who express faith and belief in Christ, which expressed or evidenced by love and obedience to Christ. So Christ goes on to describe the particular attention he has given to ensure that this helper is intended for them only and not for this world. Look at verse number 17. Verse number 17, he says, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this world, unbelievers, those who do not recognize and respond to Jesus as Savior and Lord can never in any way, shape, or form experience this ministry of the Holy Spirit, this helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. They go through trials, yes, maybe with a support system, but they will never know the helper. And that's a beautiful thing that God has given to us as followers. One commentator described the promised helper and its conditional nature this way. I wanna, this is important, so hang with me here as I just read a couple lines. Jesus knew very well that the requirement of love and keeping his commands would necessitate a resource of divine proportions. What does the commentator mean there? Loving Christ and keeping on loving Christ and keeping His commandments and keeping on keeping His commandments? We can't do that. We can't do that on our own. So Christ knew that we would need what? Help. He knew that we would need help. He goes on to say this, And accordingly, he prayed that his followers would have another resource. It is, however, crucial to recognize, get this, 
It is, however, crucial to recognize that the gift of this paraclete is not to be understood as some kind of quid pro quo between Jesus and his followers, as though the market exchange for the Holy Spirit was our obedience. I love that, right? So he says this, it's not a quid pro quo. It's not about giving something in exchange for our obedience. We do not earn the Holy Spirit just as we do not earn our what? Our salvation. But the Holy Spirit is made full effect in our life through the process of responding rightly to Jesus as the Son of God. Wow. I think that's important for us to know. We don't earn this Holy Spirit. He's freely given it to us because he knows we need that help. If, if you're like me and if you're an honest human being, it doesn't take very long to get through your day, one day, to realize that you need help. <laughs> Did you feel the pain of your flesh early in your day? Do you feel the aches and the pains, the struggles? Do you feel um, the sin that clings very closely to you? Do you feel temptation? Do you feel your pride and your arrogance, your selfishness as you interact in your home with your spouse and your kids, your coworkers in the workplace? Do you need help? I, I do. I need, I need lots of it. My wife is saying amen. Yeah, she, she, she knows I need lots of it. My kids know I need lots of help. They help me, and I'm thankful for that gift. But we have the Holy Spirit, the helper. The Holy Spirit coming to help us. So not only does Christ promise this helper, but secondly, Christ promises that he will not leave them. Verse number 18. I will not leave you as what? As orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus uses this familial term of orphan to heighten the depth of his relationship that he carries with his disciples and in turn with us. Christ is a loving and gracious and merciful father figure in our life spiritually. And he will not leave us as what? As orphans. Remember, who is Christ? He is a good shepherd. He is the door of the sheep. He loves, he cares for, he protects. He has great concern for the spiritual well-being of his disciples. Therefore, Christ is not some type of absentee father who leaves his children to fend for themselves. No, Jesus will not, nor would he ever allow that to happen. He will not leave them as orphans. So Jesus, in this promise, he clarifies and validates his relationship with them. He is not abandoning them. He is not deserting them. He certainly is not giving up on them. Rather, Jesus is leaning into his relationship with them and saying, I will give you the helper. I will not leave you as orphans. You're not alone. You're not alone to do this work that I'm about to task you with. The great commission of going, therefore, and making disciples of all nations. An insurmountable task that he will give them soon. I love this second phrase at the end of verse number 18. What does Christ say to them? I will not leave you as orphans, but what? I will come to you. I will come to you. There are a number of interpretations about what coming this is referring to. Some believe this is referring to the future sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Others say that this is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. I think those interpretations are stretches. We have an immediate context that helps and guides us in this understanding. We don't have to look too far 
to understand that Christ is simply referring to what his post-resurrection body, where Christ will reveal himself in bodily form and have a few more short, intimate moments with his followers before he ascends up into heaven. So Christ is just saying, look, I'm going to leave you. It's going to be temporary. I'm going to come back to you in bodily form. But there's going to be a, a much more lengthy separation that will come after that. But he's simply just saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he continues to build on that. And our second truth that we're going to look at this morning is this. Not only does Jesus demonstrate a unique and lasting love for his disciples, but secondly, Jesus establishes the purpose and role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. Jesus establishes the purpose and role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. We see this in the latter portion of our text, verses 25 through 31. Let's read it quickly. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, right? Here's our second instance of the helper. He clarifies not only just this spirit of truth, but now the full term of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So verse 26 seems to be this transition in the final portions of chapter 14 to this final farewell statement in this upper room discourse. Christ's time on the earth was drawing to close this new era of this helper in Jesus, which is going to be gone, will usher in another helper, the Holy Spirit, that will continue this work of spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus through the world. It's interesting to note, just a little sidebar there, that this use of the Holy Spirit is only one of three times that John uses this in any of his writings, both in his epistles and Revelation. So he's clarifying, not as, just as this paraclete, a helper, an advocate, a comforter, a counselor, but he's the Spirit of truth, and this is the Holy Spirit, the triune God. So this Holy Spirit is described here as functioning in two particular ways. First, the Spirit is involved in what? Teaching. The Spirit is involved in teaching. This would resonate with His disciples. What, is, what has Christ done time and time, year after year with His disciples? He was engaged in constant what? Teaching. That's, that's what He did. He taught the disciples. He taught the multitudes. He, he was described as... Uh, as, as the guards who were gone to arrest him, they came back and they say, this man teaches like no other man. He was a great teacher, a rabbi in his day. And so there no doubt was concern on the disciples' part of where are they going to get their teaching from? How are they going to know what to do? How are they going to know how to act? How are they going to know about God? Well, the Spirit was going to be engaged in teaching. And not only was this spirit engaged in teaching, but secondly, it was involved in bringing to remembrance. We're bringing to remembrance. Teaching and bringing to remembrance what? Christ and all that, that he had said to them, all that he had showed to them, all that he had lived out in their midst. The spirit would bring this to remembrance. This would be no doubt the how behind the teaching them all that I have commanded you of the Great Commission. Do we remember it? Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them what? All that I have commanded you. Who's the I? Christ commanded who? The disciples. How are they going to remember all that? The Spirit. The Spirit's going to bring it to mind of who Christ is, how He loved, how He lived. His nature, His person, His work, His miracles, the signs, the wonders, His mission, His nature as all the I am statements through the Gospel of John. He's going to bring the Helper, the Holy Spirit's going to bring all that to mind so that they can go out and they can make disciples of all nations. The Spirit does that work. So why does Jesus take the time to engage with his disciples in this way? Two reasons. First of all, to settle their hearts. 
Again, they're struggling with this idea of separation. They can't imagine life without Jesus. So what does he do? He speaks to the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt once more. And he says in our text, what does he say in verse 27? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. We see that in verse number one of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says it again right here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Peace. He says that he gives. This is the third gift, promise, and a resource that Christ will give to his disciples. He gives them peace. And that peace will come through this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Their hearts will no longer be troubled. Why? Because they have a helper. We see Paul supporting this idea. Fast forward to Romans chapter number 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit does what? Helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us you and for me, with groanings too deep, too deep for words. Friends, the Spirit is engaged proactively in our lives and He cares deeply for us so much that He is making groanings on our behalf. Too deep for words to even describe. This is the ministry and the help and the care and the concern that this Holy Spirit has for us, for you and for me. We are cared for well in this gift of the Spirit. He's going to the Father and making intercession for us. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you realize that in the context of the famous Romans 8, 28, and 29, that we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit? That is the Holy Spirit that gives us the confidence to know that all things can and will work out for good, for our good and for His glory. Why? Because we have a helper. The Spirit is making intercession on our behalf. And so we can believe that. It's not a cliche verse. Because that verse is anchored in the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. So here we have this peace that Christ leaves with you. Not just any peace. Christ clarifies, it is my peace. It is the peace of Christ. That is anchored in His character and His authority both in heaven and on earth. And so no matter what comes, if we have the peace of Christ, right? The, the same Christ that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. It is that Christ and it is His peace. So no matter how deep the trial, no matter how difficult it may be, we know that it's anchored in the authority and the nature of Jesus Christ Himself. And so does it matter that Christ says, I give you peace and my peace? Yes, it does matter. It is divine peace. It is peace that passes what? All understanding. And it will protect and guard our minds in Christ Jesus. So we fast forward once again to Paul's writings in the book of Philippians, chapter number four, verses four through eight. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Disciples, don't be anxious about anything. Even your beloved Messiah leaving this earth and leaving you to do a work. Don't be anxious about anything, church age believers, in this completion of the Great Commission to going and making disciples of all nations. Don't be anxious about that. 
They'll be anxious about the comfortableness of a relationship that is taken away. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why does the peace of God guard our hearts and our minds? Because it is in Christ Jesus. It is the peace of Christ that God the Father uses to guard our hearts and our minds. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Whatever you have learned and received and heard of me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. To do what? Verse 31. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I have loved the Father. Rise! Let us go from here. When we truly understand belief in Christ, anchored in the love for Christ, that is evidenced in obedience to Christ, we will willingly and graciously pursue the call to go and make disciples of Christ. You see, what does love for Christ end in? What is the product that is produced in the life of a believer? More disciples. Christ said he will build his church. We've been given everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Andy read out of 2 Peter chapter number 1. We've been given these precious and great promises. We've been given the paraclete, the helper, the counselor, the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the triune God. He's with us and he is in us. And there is no trial too great. There is no difficulty too broad. There is no tragedy too devastating that we cannot find hope and that we cannot experience the peace of Christ. So take hope. Take refuge. Be encouraged as Christ encouraged his disciples with these truths this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can take our fear and you can turn it to action. Action not for our own benefit, but for your glory. So Father, I pray as we continue to know and to understand and what it looks like to follow you, to be a disciple of you. Father, I pray that you would do a great work in and through our midst. We thank you for this time. I pray that we would respond rightly to it. In Jesus' name, amen.